This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. Have you ever been so wounded by someone's words that it literally changed the course of your life? Well, that's exactly what happened to Rachmaninoff when one of the most influential Russian music critics ripped his symphony number one to shreds in the newspaper for everyone to see. It killed his will to compose. Rachmaninoff wrote nothing for three years. And one of the most promising young talents to ever come out of Russia looked like he might never write another note. But then... Young Sergei executes one of the greatest comeback stories in the history of music to create what is still one of the most well-known, most beloved piano concertos ever written. Welcome to the Great Composer series from Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. I'm host Carla Walker with conductor Scott O'Neill. Last episode, we told you the story of the disastrous premiere of Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 1. This episode, we explore the power of family and friends in Rachmaninoff's life to help him write his extraordinary piano concerto No. 2. But we begin this episode in the deep, dark cavern of Rachmaninoff's depression. Scott, take us back to the scene. Rachmaninoff is in a bad place after the disaster that was the premiere of his first symphony. Yeah, he's surviving, but that's about it. I mean, he's teaching at a girls' school. He's conducting some opera. He's playing piano some, but he's not really composing much. So he's still in the music scene, but It strikes me that he's sort of just trudging through life. He's not completely debilitated, but he's just kind of barely existing. Yeah, I mean, it's like his muse has left him. His self-confidence is crushed. Self-doubt has crippled him. He's kind of switched gears, really. I mean, he's become a conductor, a performer, and a teacher, and it looks like that's going to be his future. You know, nothing to be ashamed of, right? But not to those who know and love him and know how talented he is as a composer. This is where we begin episode four. We're calling it, It Takes a Village. (laughs) If ever the phrase, It Takes a Village, could be applied to a piece of music, this would be it. The second piano concerto. And the comeback story starts when a piece of Rachmaninoff's becomes a huge hit abroad. Yeah, his cousin, Alexander Solotti. You remember him. Yeah, the first member of Rachmaninoff's village from episode two. He's the older cousin, a pianist who intervened when Rachmaninoff was failing out of the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Yep. Solotti was in London on tour as a concert pianist, and he played Rachmaninoff's C-sharp minor prelude, among other works. It was a huge hit. The British couldn't get enough of it. Music lovers started buying Rachmaninoff's sheet music hand over fist, and it was published worldwide. So instantly, and unbeknownst to Rachmaninoff at the time, his music is internationally famous. And then they invited Rachmaninoff to travel to London to perform. And they loved him as a pianist so much that they asked him to return the following season to play the piano concerto he had written as a student at the Moscow Conservatory. 
Rachmaninoff got so inspired, he told him, you know what, I will write you a new piano concerto, even better than the first. So things are turning around for Rachmaninoff. Yeah, and if it couldn't get any better, Rachmaninoff also meets another literary icon, Anton Chekhov, who told him, I've been watching you, and I can tell you will be a great man. Well, that's a nice change of pace. Flashback (laughs) to last episode. We talked about how Rachmaninoff met Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, hoping to get some inspiration from him. Yeah, that didn't happen. Tolstoy essentially told Rachmaninoff that his music was rubbish. So what a dramatic contrast to receive so much encouragement from Chekhov. It really seemed to restore his self-confidence. He talked about that meeting and his love for Chekhov the rest of his life. So Rachmaninoff gets this shot of confidence from one of Russia's great writers. He's a star abroad. His C-sharp minor prelude is all the rage. He's a hit as a pianist in London. So now he's back on track and writing his second piano concerto. Uh, not so fast. It didn't happen. (laughs) Right. If it were only that easy for Rachmaninoff. Yeah, he actually had to cancel because he just couldn't produce the new concerto he had promised. Couldn't produce the concerto. Yeah, he went home to compose, gave it a try. It just fizzled out. So call up the London Phil and tell him I have to cancel. This is crazy, Scott. This is every young composer's dream. Yeah, I know. After all of the things that are going right in his life right now with all the positive momentum, he just doesn't finish the work in time, really? Well, for whatever reason, there just seemed to be some type of block, something preventing him from composing the way he once did. His family must have been at their wit's end. Oh, they've had it. They stage an intervention. All right. So (laughs) let's just recap here because they have already staged two interventions. the first time for sure. Right. The first one we talked about, it was his cousin who saw the young Rachmaninoff floundering. So we sent him off to the Moscow Conservatory. The second intervention we also mentioned, it's when a friend sees he's in a funk, sends him to meet his idol, the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy for inspiration. And now intervention number Number three, for the talented but hyper self-critical Sergei Rachmaninoff. Yeah, at the time, Sergei is living with his aunt and uncle, and it just so happened that down the street was a doctor who specialized in hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy. Let's remember, we're in the early 1900s. This is very new, very experimental. Oh, yeah, but I think his family was willing to try anything. So they said, go, go see Dr. Dahl. And he really went. Yeah, it's kind of against his nature, but he went. He'd walk down the street to Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Nikolai Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality. Positive affirmations. <laughs> yeah, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and <laughs> doggone it, people like me. But it was heartfelt. I mean, it was very sincere on Dr. Dahl's part. Oh, definitely. And it turns out, I think they were kind of kindred spirits. Well, how often would he go? Every day for three months. That sounds expensive. Well, believe it or not, it was free. Hmm. Rachmaninoff was broke at the time, and Dahl treated him free of charge. 
Well, Dahl was a musician. He was an amateur string player. Oh, and they talked about music a lot. But Dahl's main focus really was on dealing with Rachmaninoff's anxiety. He wasn't sleeping well. He'd lost his appetite. You know, all the things we now know to be associated with depression. All the things that were really blocking his creativity. So all of this positive talk therapy was so good for Rachmaninoff. He really just relaxed back into being a composer. Oh, it totally worked. He actually wrote, By the beginning of summer, I again began to compose. The material grew in bulk, and new musical ideas began to stir within me, more than enough for my concerto. And one of those ideas is so quintessentially Rachmaninoff, because, you know, I've found he writes all these pieces in these dark minor keys, but the moments that we remember from them are all these beautiful, warm, major keys. And so this is exactly what he does to start the second movement. It starts in this still, dark C minor. And very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major. The thing I love about this piece, Scott, is even though it's a piano concerto, the piano doesn't hog the melody. The melody gets passed around. Exactly. And I can't help thinking he had accompanied so many singers during his time as an opera conductor at the Mariinsky Theater. And really, that's exactly what the piano is doing here. The pianist is accompanying what's really a song. The flute is a singer who hands off to the clarinet another voice. By the end of the movement, one of Rachmaninoff's most beautiful, luxurious themes. Second movement to Rachmaninoff's beloved second piano concerto, the piece where he is able to break free from his writer's block. But Scott, why are we starting in the middle of the piece? Why are we starting with the second movement? Right. Well, for the first people who heard this piece, this is how it started. Hmm. He actually wrote movements two and three first. And he actually played it that way once. And that premiere, that partial premiere, went well, right? Oh, they loved it. His writer's block finally broken. Scott, you said it took a village, and it did. His family urging him to go see Dr. Dahl, then Dr. Dahl practicing positive talk therapy every day with Rachmaninoff. And while he's writing the concerto, another character in the village becomes crucially important. He doesn't get much credit in the history of music, but I think he should a fellow composer by the name of Nikita Morozov. Yeah, I never heard of him. <laughs> and if it weren't for Rachmaninoff, he would be virtually forgotten today. 
which I think is a real shame considering how important he was to the most famous piano concerto in the repertoire today. Hmm. How's that? So Rachmaninoff is in the process of writing his second piano concerto, and he visits his friend Morozov, who had been a fellow composition student at the Moscow Conservatory. And Morozov played one of his own pieces for Rachmaninoff. We think it sounded something like this. And Rachmaninoff liked it so much. He said, oh, that is a melody I should have composed. And the story goes that Morozov, who virtually worshipped Rachmaninoff, said very calmly, well, take it. That's incredible. He said, here, just have it, take it? Yep, and it is believed that this is that melody. It's hard to imagine that one of Rachmaninoff's most famous melodies might not actually be Rachmaninoff's, that it might have been written by someone else. But do you know that for sure? Well, the story comes from a guy who knew both Rachmaninoff and Morozov very well, and apparently he was there. He was in the room. Well, I think it's fair to say that no one in that room that day knew that this was going to become one of the great piano concertos of all time. Yeah, but years later, the friend recounted the story to one of Rachmaninoff's biographers. You know, the story is not well known at all, but I think we need to take this claim seriously because we know that Rachmaninoff really respected Morozov. In fact, when Rachmaninoff wrote the first movement, which was the last to be written, he sent it to Morozov to get his opinion. You know, I can't help thinking that Rachmaninoff sent it to him, expecting some encouragement, but that's not exactly what he got. (laughs) Morozov told him that this main theme to the first movement He said, uh, yeah, that's not really the main theme, the so-called second theme. That's really your main theme. When he received this criticism, it was just five days before the scheduled premiere of the piece. He had to have been beside himself How did he respond, Scott? He agreed. He said, you're right. The first theme is not a first theme, but an introduction. I feel that the whole first movement is spoiled. And from this minute on, I find it repulsive. I'm simply in despair. Oh, no. It's like he's back, hiding underneath the stairs at the premiere of his first symphony, cowering in fear. But, you know, he didn't hide. Give him credit. He soldiered on and played the concert, and thank God he did. Because these melodies, this piece defines Rachmaninoff as the great Russian romantic. And this points to something that I think is really key to understanding Rachmaninoff. 
Morozov was right when he told Rachmaninoff that his second theme was really the main melody. Most pieces are remembered for their first themes. Not so in this concerto. Really, all of the most important, most memorable themes are actually the second ones. I mean, the first movement starts with that. But that's not what people really remember from this movement. It's the second theme. And the second movement, that beautiful long melody. And as we've already mentioned, the last movement, that beautiful. In this piece, it's the slow, lyrical themes. I think of them literally as songs without words that really make this concerto so great. Oh my gosh, those romantic themes, they just go straight to your heart. And when Rachmaninoff is composing like that, essentially songs, lyrical, singable melodies, he's incredibly successful. When he strayed from that in his first symphony, Big fail, right? Mm. But I really think he found his voice here. He's really writing songs. It's just that they're sung, so to speak, by instruments in this concerto. And the concerto was an overnight success in Russia and internationally. Absolutely. These melodies are so quintessentially singable. Even modern songsters like Frank Sinatra have used his melodies in their songs. Full moon and empty arms The moon is there for us to share But where are you? And you know, this lyricism kind of lies at the epicenter of what you might call the Rachmaninoff controversy. All right, explain that. Well, there are such polar opinions of Rachmaninoff's music. Those who hate his music find it vapid and schmaltzy. Those who love it, myself included, mm -hmm. find it beautiful and luxurious, almost like manna for the soul. And we're going to get to this controversy in future episodes but for right now, this is who he is. He has found his voice as a lyrical songwriter. You know, and to think, he went from virtually zero, virtually unable to write anything, to this. It can't be overstated what a turnaround this was, but Scott, it was a tough road back for Rachmaninoff to find himself. Yeah, and to make that journey, he had to rely on that village. He really needed the emotional support of his aunt and uncle and his cousin Alexander Solotti, the psychological support of Dr. Ingolf Dahl, the encouragement of Anton Chekhov, and in my opinion, perhaps most importantly, the artistic input of Nikita Morozov. And so with all those friends in his village, he could have dedicated the concerto to any one of them. But he chose Dr. <laughs> Dahl. I'm pretty sure it's the only piece in classical music dedicated to his shrink. 
next time on The Great Composers, the honeymoon doesn't last long. Economic recession, social unrest, and an angry working class all lead to major instability for Russia's ruling class. And you know, Rachmaninoff thinks, you know, now might be the time to make the most of that international fame, and he gets out of Dodge. (laughs) But most important of all, he faces his fears and attempts to write another symphony. That's next time on the Great Composer Series from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.